0: Thanks, Britt. Um, Yeah, good morning again. I'm glad that you're with us, Life Church. I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you. We're going to be in the book of Joshua, um, chapters 9 and 10 this morning. Um, I have a lot of ground to cover in those two chapters, so I want to get right to it, but I think you'll be served well if um, you can put that in front of your face. So whether you're using an old-school, old-fashioned paper Bible like me or a device of some kind with a Bible app. I'd love it if you'd turn to Joshua 9 and 10. One of our most basic commitments as a church um, is to the idea that God knows better than we do what we really need to hear. Um, In other words, we're convinced that human wisdom is just a tiny drop in the bucket compared to the vast ocean of God's wisdom. And so that's why we like to let God kind of set the agenda for what we will set our minds and hearts on, for what we will hear when we gather together on Sunday morning. And that's why our normal practice here at Life Church is just to preach and to teach through whole books of the Bible, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time. Um, But with a book like Joshua, that actually presents sort of a unique challenge for us um, because this is a long book. Like, it's really long, and it's full of 24 really long chapters Um, Today we're trying to cover two of those really long chapters as we try to like wrap this series up just in front of Easter. And so um, I I don't have a problem like standing up here honestly for like hours on end talking you through these really long chapters in this really long book. Like I'm very comfortable with that. I think that God has given me the spiritual gift of preaching sermons that are too long. Um, Like that's a tool that is in my toolbox, right? But um, I know that that's not something that everybody like, warms to in their hearts, and there are also some really dedicated people who serve our kids' ministry over on that side of the wall who tell me that like, when I throw down for 55 minutes, it makes their life a little bit hard. And so um, as a result of that, like, we're just trying to be mindful of the clock in this series and trying to keep things as tight as we can. As a result of that, um, I'm not going to take the time today to parse every Hebrew verb in these two chapters. I'm not going to take the time today to unpack every phrase in these two chapters. I'm not even going to read every verse in these two chapters. I tell you all of that because I think you should. And I think you can, right? Like every verse in these two chapters matters. Every phrase in these two chapters matters. And by God, by by all means, like if God has given you the ability to parse every Hebrew verb in these two chapters, then I think you would be, Blessed by that. And so I just tell you these things because, like, every week on Friday and our weekly email, I hope you're getting that weekly email, um, the email comes to you and we tell you there's a little, like, box on that email that tells you, like, what our text is going to be for the coming Sunday. And I think this is true, like, every week, but especially when we're in this particular series, uh, like, read the passage before you come, like, at least once. Like, look at that email, read where we're going to be. Spend some time on Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, whenever, or all of the above, just kind of marinating your heart and your mind in the truths that we're going to wrestle with together. And maybe, like, you forgot to do that, or you don't get that email, you can even leave today, and I don't think it will harm you, I just spend a little bit of extra time reading through every verse, every phrase of Joshua 9 and 10. In the weeks that are ahead of us, um, there are going to be some weeks where we just have to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but I think you will be served well if you take the time to prepare your heart for this time by being in the text that we'll study together on your own. Soapbox over. Joshua 9 and 10 this morning. Um, I'm trying to be a good Baptist, which means that we're gonna look at three things in this passage together. Let me pray for us again, and we'll jump into that. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Soften our hearts as we sit under your word together as your people. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So on a very high level, these two chapters, Joshua 9 and 10, give us really two contrasting pictures. Joshua chapter 9 shows us what happens when God's people act without God's help. And chapter 10 shows us what happens when God's people act with God's help. Now in case you're new with us or this is your first time back in a while, the story of Joshua is a story about God's people entering into the land that God has promised them, the promised land, right? 500 years before Joshua chapter 1 verse 1, God made a promise to his people that they would one day inhabit this particular land and now God is keeping that promise. The issue is that there are other people who already live in that land. And so God directs and enables his people to conquer the promised land, to take possession of it by force. And that's why Joshua is probably the bloodiest book in the Bible. It's the story of God's people in armed conflict with the inhabitants of the promised land. By the way, this idea of We might call it a holy war, right? A war that is commanded by God and directed by God against the pagan people who live in the promised land, right? If that's an idea that bothers you, um, you certainly aren't alone, right? I think it's reasonable for us uh, to be at least a little bit uncomfortable with the picture of God directing his people to kill their enemies. On the flip side of that, if you are like super comfortable with that picture, if like that picture gives you some warm fuzzies, then, well, I know a good counselor that I can recommend to you. But this notion of a God who, who keeps his promises, right, of a God who is strong and mighty, of a God who disciplines his own people and punishes his enemies for their wickedness, right, that's a notion that is really central to who the Bible presents God to be, which means that we need to think about this God. We need to meditate on this God. We need to reflect on the attributes and the purposes of this God that we see here in the book of Joshua. Which is why, as we've walked through this book, I've really had to remind myself again and again that I'm a pastor and not a politician. Right? A politician, like he tries to figure out what people want to hear, and he fine-tunes his message around what his audience wants, right? Around what is popular. And so he does polling, he he brings in focus groups, and he carefully crafts his message so that he can say things that he knows people will respond positively to. In other words, a politician knows that his job hinges on how much people like what he has to say. A pastor, on the other hand, shouldn't care too much about what people want to hear Instead, he should be focused on what people need to hear. A pastor doesn't pull the likes and interests of his people. He listens to the voice of God, speaking through the word of God, and then does everything that he can to faithfully relay that truth about God to his people. A pastor might know that his employment, on some level, hinges on how much people like what he has to say but he knows that his job, which is different than his employment, is only done well if it's done well in the eyes of God. And so church, we're here today in another bloody part of the book of Joshua. I just need to say, whether we want to hear this or not, like this is what we need to hear. Right? We need to hear about and from the God who keeps his promises to his people. We need to hear about and from the God who fights for his people as they conquer his enemies. We need to hear about and from the God of the book of Joshua because he is our God. Now, I told you that we'd think about three things in the passage. Here's the first one. In this story, especially in chapter 9, let's behold the folly of failing to seek God's wisdom. Behold the folly of failing to seek God's wisdom. Chapter nine opens with people who are stirred up because they've heard about the nation of Israel and the way that her God is overcoming her enemies. And so read that with me, just the first two verses of chapter nine. The writer says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, heard of God through his people overcoming his enemies. As soon as they heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel so these are the people who already live in the promised land, right? They've heard that Israel is conquering the promised land through the mighty power of God. They've heard that God is fighting for his people. And so they realize that if they like kind of do their own thing, they're going to get picked off one by one. so they partner together all of the Hittites and all of the Amorites and all of the Canaanites and all of the everything elseites and they come to fight against Joshua and against Israel as one army. But the narrator pauses right there, and he instead focuses for a time on a group of people who don't join the fight against Israel. He pauses to tell us about the Gibeonites, starting in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Now that's an interesting introduction to the Gibeonites. What's this about, really? Well, to explain this, the first thing that I thought about this week was... I thought about Pastor Matt, right? If you call Life Church home, you probably know Pastor Matt. And if you know Pastor Matt, then you probably know the fact that Pastor Matt didn't grow up here. He grew up in Chicago. He spent most of his childhood in Chicago through his 20s in Chicago. Then after Pastor Matt left Chicago, he spent several years in the great state of Alaska. And then after he left Alaska, he spent several years with his family in the not-so-great state of Iowa, and then he moved here, right? And so, Pastor Matt, he's lived in Chicago, and Alaska, and Iowa, and now here. Which means that Pastor Matt does not think very much about North Carolina winters, right? And you see that, like if you roll up, like a bitterly cold January Sunday morning, like our connections team will be outside. And those people, they'll like be wearing their heaviest parkas and their, their stocking caps. Right, some of the, the ladies will be wrapped up in blankets. The men will have like, hand warmers in their pockets, and they'll be stuffing their hands in their pockets, and Pastor Matt will be outside in a short sleeve shirt all winter long. If it's really, really cold, like, he'll put on a vest over that short sleeve shirt, which we've got to admire. Like, that's a pretty bold fashion statement, in addition to being a bold statement about what Pastor Matt thinks about our winters. But the point in saying this is that, you know, if you roll up on Sunday morning and you see Pastor Matt on a bitterly cold day out there in his short-sleeved shirt, you think to yourself, Well, that guy's clearly not from around here. And that's what the Gibeonites are going for. Right? They they put on like worn-out sandals and worn-out clothes, they get moldy bread, they pack their clothes in worn-out luggage, so that when they come and stand before the people of Israel, the people of Israel look at them and they think, And you guys have been on a long journey, haven't you? You must not be from around here. Just the way that we respond to Pastor Matt on a cold Sunday morning. The Gibeonites, they're deliberately trying to deceive the Israelites into thinking that they've come on a long journey from a place far away. They want to appear like they're not from Canaan. They want to appear like they've journeyed a great distance over a great period of time in order to arrive at Israel's doorstep. Now, why would they do that? Well, God has commanded Israel, his people, to destroy the inhabitants of the Promised Land. He's commanded Israel, his people, to destroy everyone that lives in the Promised Land. But he also told his people that if they encounter somebody like a far-off nation, that they're allowed to make a peace treaty, a covenant with that people. And so here come the Gibeonites, right? They live in the promised land. They should be destroyed. But they act like and present themselves like they're not from around here, like they live far away. And they come and they ask Israel for a covenant, a peace treaty. Look at verse six. And they went to Joshua, this is the Gibeonites, in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now, Make a covenant with us. Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm gonna fast forward through most of the remaining events in chapter nine. The Gibeonites, they lie to Israel and Israel believes the lie. Like they do make a covenant with the Gibeonites. Immediately after they make that covenant with the Gibeonites, they discover that the Gibeonites aren't from a distant country. In fact, they're their next door neighbors, the very people that God has commanded them to kill and destroy But Joshua and the Israelites, they've made a covenant, and so they keep that covenant. They keep their oath to the Gibeonites. Instead of destroying them, Joshua curses them and forces them to do hard manual labor. That's how chapter 9 ends. But the point that I want to make in bringing the Gibeonites to our attention this morning, well, it pertains to Israel's decision-making process. In verse 8, Joshua asks the men of Gibeon, who are you? Where do you come from? And the Gibeonites, they answer, we come from a very distant country because we've heard about your God and we've heard about how he slave, saved you from slavery in Egypt and look at our worn out sandals and our worn out luggage and our worn out clothes and you know, smell our moldy bread, right? Clearly, we're not from around here. But then notice what verse 14 tells us. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Did you hear it? They did not ask counsel from the Lord. The Israelites made the decision to make a covenant with the Gibeonites, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did it because it made sense. Right, According to their human wisdom, it seemed good. It seemed right. It seemed like a sound decision. But they did not stop to consider divine wisdom. They didn't seek God's help. They didn't consult God's word. They didn't pray foolishly. They relied on their own intellects, their own judgments, their own thoughts. Behold the folly of failing to seek God's wisdom. Then when we get into chapter 10 in just a minute, we're gonna see the consequences of failing to seek God's wisdom. But for now, just linger for a moment at the sight of such foolish and unwise behavior from Israel and her leaders. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. At the heart of every sin, at the heart of every foolish, broken, disordered decision is one lie. That lie is, I know better than God does the way that my life should go. I know better than God does the way that my life should go. Have you ever told yourself that lie? Have you ever believed that lie? How are you believing that lie right now at this very moment? I know better than God does how I should spend my money, says the person who foolishly cannot or will not trust God enough to give generously and sacrificially. I know better than God does how I should invest my time and my talents, says the person who foolishly cannot or will not, trust God enough to invest their time and their talents in the ministry of their local church. I know better than God does what my relationships should look like, says the person who foolishly cannot or will not bring their sexual lives in line with the very clear teaching of Scripture. I know better than God does how to make myself feel better right now, says the person who foolishly numbs their heartaches and their pains with drink or substance or media consumption. I know better than God does the voices that I need to listen to in my life, says the person who opens social media first thing in the morning, but never meditates upon God's word says the person who fills their lives with relationships with friends and coworkers and neighbors, but who refuses to commit to the accountability relationships that come through membership in a local church. I know better than God does exactly what I need in order to follow Jesus, says the person who prefers the couch and the podcast on Sunday morning over what happens when the real life flesh and blood people of God gather to hear and sing and pray and see God's word in a local church. I know better than God does the way my life should go. Those are just a few of the ways that I've run into that lie this week. What about you? How have you witnessed this lie? How have you been deceived by this folly? In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, in verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And then he adds, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, the psalmist says. Some translations there, they don't say lines, they say boundary lines, Because the idea in the Hebrew here is is like a boundary line, a perimeter that the Lord has drawn for you. And so the psalmist is saying that the box the Lord has placed you in by his word and by his laws, the perimeter that the Lord has established around your life by his word and by his laws, that that perimeter is put in a pleasant place for you. The psalmist knows that The Lord draws those boundary lines in ways that are good. They've fallen for us in pleasant places. Do you know that? Do you live like that is true? Or do you foolishly, like Israel, fail to seek the wisdom of God? Do you foolishly, like Israel, believe that you know better than God does the way your life should go. That's the first thing I want us to consider this morning. Now, here's the second. Behold the fearsome power of our warrior God. When we get to chapter 10, we get back to all the people who want to kill the Israelites. The Gibeonites, they've tricked Israel into making a covenant with them, but everyone else still wants to fight Everyone else still wants to fight Israel, especially this dude named Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem. Adonai Zedek, he gets everyone riled up and he forms this coalition with a bunch of other kings. There are five of them total. And so Adonai Zedek and the five kings, they go and they don't attack Israel, they actually attack the people of Gibeon. Now Israel has a peace treaty with Gibeon. It's like Gibeon and Israel, they're in NATO together. And so that means that because Gibeon is under attack, Israel has to come and defend Gibeon. That's what we see if we pick up chapter 10 and verse six. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Emirates who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so Joshua and the army of Israel, they, they move at night under the cover of darkness, and they, you know, surprise attack. Adonai, Zedek, and his five kings and their armies. Verse nine. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord, I want you to listen, and the Lord threw them, the armies of the five kings, into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. I want you to think about what a bad day the soldiers and the Amorite army are having here, right? Like they, maybe maybe there's this guy who, who just finally got promoted right, like he was, you know, shoveling manure for the army, he was feeding the horses, and suddenly Adonai Zedek has trusted him to be, you know, one of his frontline soldiers. And So he's given him a sword, and he's sharpened that sword, he's given him armor, and he's polished that armor, and he's thinking, one of these days I'm going to get to attack some Israelites, it's going to be good, and then all of a sudden in the early morning when it's still dark, the Israelite army comes as if from nowhere, and the Lord strikes in the hearts of the Amorites panic and fear and so they don't know where the attack is coming from they're bewildered and they're confused and fear is in their hearts and then when they're starting to lose the battle with their swords suddenly God up on his cloud in heaven starts pelting Amorite soldiers with massive hailstones and as you note just just to reiterate who's really winning the battle here There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword It's clear that though Israel is fighting against the five kings and their armies, it's the Lord who's winning the battle. And then the exclamation point on that comes in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped Until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Which is like this historical book that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit like the Bible is, but that tells us about some of the things that happened in the Bible. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? In other words, go check. You can read about it. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, I don't know how you react in your gut to this picture of a God who fights for his people, right? To this picture of a God who smites his enemies with massive hailstones, to this picture of a God who freezes the sun in its position in the middle of the sky so that his people can finish routing his enemies in broad daylight. But my guess is that this picture of the warrior God of Israel, is probably not the first thing that you think about when you think about God. But if you're like most of us, the first thing that you think about when you think about God is maybe like a, a Psalm 23 kind of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The first thing that we think about when we think about God is his tender and kind provision and care for us. And by the way, that is a true and clear picture of God. God is the God of Psalm 23. He is as Psalm 23 describes him. But that's not all that he is. Or maybe think, like, what's the first image of Jesus that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? Right? For most of us, it's, it's a fairly like, soft, kind of cuddly picture of Jesus, isn't it? Like, maybe we think that he's surrounded by children. He's out on the green grass, like, holding this baby lamb in his arms. Like, he's gentle and calm and kind. And again, that's a true and clear and accurate picture of Jesus. Maybe not the lamb part, but everything else, right? That's, that's who Jesus was, Jesus himself. He said that he's gentle and lowly of heart. And so he is kind and he is patient and he is tender. But again, that isn't all that Jesus is. Contrast for a moment that picture of Jesus with this one. It comes from Revelation 19. Now, brothers and sisters, that also is a true and clear and accurate picture of Jesus. And so not only does Jesus gather little children around him and deal patiently with people and kindly with sinners like you and me, but Jesus also judges his enemies and strikes down nations with the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty Jesus also will one day appear with the blood of his enemies on his robes and his sword of just judgment coming from his mouth. And you see what I'm driving at here? right? Not only is the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd God, real, but that God is also the God who strikes down his enemies and hurls hailstones at them and freezes the sun in place so that Israel can wipe out his enemies. Right? Not only is the God of the Bible this tender and merciful and forgiving God, but he is also ferocious and terrifying and deadly. And here's why that matters. Here's why we have to hold those two things together and why we can't have just one without the other. The reason is because if you do not find God to be fearsome, then you will inevitably be ruled by the fear of something else in your life. Right, If God does not seem to you to be potentially terrible, then you will think that something else in your life is potentially more terrible than God is. And so if God doesn't seem to you as fearsome, then the fear of something else is gonna be your master. Right, if you find something or someone other than God to be more terrifying than God in your life, then whatever that other thing is, it's really gonna be your Lord. It's gonna master you. Your fear of that thing is gonna influence you and shape you more than your fear of God does. I can illustrate this just as I think about my own life. The truth is lots of illustrations of this come to mind from my own life, and, and I don't expect your heart to be wired exactly like my heart is wired, right? You may relate to what I am about to say, in other words, and you may not, and, and that's fine. My point isn't to make you relate. My point is just to show you what this looks like when we're ruled by the fear of something other than God. One of the fears that I'm tempted to let rule my heart is what theologians call just the fear of man. In short, I care way too much what people think about me. I care way too much what you think about me. That's just like the way my heart is prone to wander. And that means that my whole outlook on life, right, like my emotional stability and my sense of well-being, like these things can rise and fall based not on what you actually think about me, but just on what I think you might think about me. And so I can stand up here and do my thing for 40 minutes on a Sunday morning, right, and... If a few of you say amen along the way, and then the vibe in the room feels pretty solid after I'm done, and I go stand in front of my chair, and people sing loudly, right? And it seems to me, it feels to me like I've done my job well, and that y'all approve of me, right? Like that sends me on an emotional high, which is sinful and wicked. And at the same time, the opposite is true. If I stand here and I do my thing, it doesn't matter how faithful I am to God's word, like if... The room's kind of flat and quiet. And then I go stand in front of my chair and the vibe feels pretty normal. And people don't sing all that loud after the sermon. Like it's possible for me just to feel like a failure when that happens. Because I can let my fear of you rule my heart. Right? I can let your opinion of my work determine what I think I'm worth. And that's a miserable place to be. It's a miserable place to be because even when you say amen and sing loud, right, it's a miserable place to be if your view of yourself rises and falls based on what other people think about you. But that's exactly where fear of man leads you, right? Right? That's inevitable if fear of man is what rules your heart because you're always going to find someone who's disappointed by you. You're always going to find somebody who doesn't think that you are all that awesome. You're always going to find somebody who just thinks that you're okay. And if everything that you think about yourself is shaped by what other people think about you, this just going to crush you. That's what fear of man leads you to. Or at least when fear of man matters more to you than fear of God, but do you know how you fight fear of man or fear of whatever else you might fear? You learn to fear God more than you fear man or fill in the blank, right? You fix your eyes, not just on kind, cuddly, warm Jesus, but on the Jesus who appears at the end of history with the blood of his enemies on his robes. You fix your eyes not just on the Lord as my Shepherd God, but on the God, the Warrior God, who fights for Israel, who stirs the hearts of his enemies into panic, who pelts his enemies with hailstones, and who freezes the sun in the middle of the sky so that his people can win victory. Our fear of the Lord is the only thing that can displace whatever else you fear. Fear of the Lord is the only thing that can free you from being ruled by whatever else you fear. And I told you we'd talk about three things and I've used all my time on two. So let's just wrap by reflecting for a very brief moment on this last thing. I want you to behold the certainty of God's promises in this story. Look with me just right at the end of Joshua chapter 10. Joshua and the Israelites, they overcome the five kings, they overcome Adonai, Zedek. Then they go from town to town, conquering the cities and the people that lived in the promised land, just like God commanded, just like God promised. But then read kind of this summary statement that starts in verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon, and Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. In other words, exactly what God promised happens. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. God was faithful and true to his promises. He was faithful and true to his word, which is why, by the way, as Jesus rides that white horse at the end of history, He is called faithful and true because it is in Christ and through Christ that God keeps all of his promises. Church, God has promised that those who turn from their sin and trust in his son will be forgiven. He will keep that promise. God has promised that there will be a day when your sin is no more when its presence will be completely banished from your life, when its power over you will be completely overwhelmed, God will keep that promise. God has promised that there will be a day when he presents you before the throne of heaven, mature and complete and gloriously radiant in Christ. And he will keep that promise. God has promised that there will be a day when all of the world's pain will be gone, when every war will be ended, when every sickness will be abolished, when every kind of grief and injustice is over. And he will keep that promise. God has promised that there will be a day when every tear is wiped from every eye, where there is no more death or sorrow or mourning or pain. And God will keep that promise. And God has promised that there will be a day when the knowledge of his glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. And church, he will keep that promise. So let's praise him, the one who is faithful and true to Joshua, to the Israelites, to you and to me, and to all of his people, and to the end of the age. Pray with me. God, we praise you. We praise you because you are a God who reveals rightly and clearly and truthfully where you have established the boundary lines in our lives. We praise you because you are a God who fights for your purposes and for your people. And we praise you because you are a God who never, ever fails to keep his promises. May we set our eyes on the full reality of who you are. And may you cultivate in us a right and holy and godly fear, not of the things of this world, but of you. So that when the things of this world grow strangely dim, our hearts are full because we have known and treasured you above all things. We pray that in Jesus' name.